Well, good evening. It is good for us to be together on this beautiful Lord's Day, and truly it has been just a gorgeous day. We appreciate today so much more because yesterday was not the most pleasant day weather-wise, and so we just begin to appreciate just the handiwork of God and that we are so blessed to enjoy so many aspects of His creation. But the beauty of this day is not simply what's on the outside weather-wise, but even more so the beauty that we share uh, today in Christ and the love that we have for him and for one another and the joy that is overflowing. Our cup truly overflows with the great news of our new sister, Victoria, being brought to the Lord. And we just celebrate with the angels of heaven over her obedience to the gospel. And so if you've not met Victoria, we encourage you to do so this evening. She's a, a, just a beautiful person to meet and get to know. Without Christ, without Jesus Christ, all sinners are lost. There's a number of passages you can look at that illustrate that. And last week we talked a little bit about this. And the, fact that, and the fact is that no other person, no other authority, and no other Savior is able to save us. There is no other being that can save the loss and redeem us from the consequences of our sins and redeem the souls of others from their sins as well. So just you know, kind of thinking about this idea, without Christ, what are we? We are lost. Without Christ... What is the world? Well, the world is lost. And so it is a subject that we need to very personally, seriously look in the mirror about. We all need to take time to look at ourselves spiritually and ask, how am I in relationship to God? You know, what is my state spiritually before my creator? And we have to ask ourselves, are we right with God? Are we right before him? Are we in fellowship with him? Or are we lost? That's an important question that every accountable person needs to examine. And if they believe Jesus to be the Christ, the son of the living God, then they need to respond to him and receive the promise of salvation that is revealed to us in the gospel. That power of Jesus. But also, as Christians, we are called not just to look out for our own interest. We are called not simply to look out for our own concerns. And neither are we called out to simply look at our own salvation. Now, we all understand there is individual responsibility, individual obligations... And that in a sense, by faith, we all have to work out our own salvation. You know, you cannot do what I need to do to be saved. You can't do it for me. But as people of God, as Christians, we are called not just to be concerned about our own salvation, but also we are called to be about, to be concerned about other people's salvation. And so we need to be a people that are constantly, actively seeking to share Christ's good news. We need to be evangelizing so souls can be saved. Not so much because of our eloquence or our personality or that you know, we have some, some amazing tactic that's going to save somebody. No, that's not the reason. But the reason is because 
We have Jesus. And we have his gospel, and that gospel is the power of salvation. And as people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, that is, Jesus paid the price. He bought us out of our slavery with his blood. And we receive the benefits of that blood, his gospel, and we become disciples of Jesus. We become children of God. And we become God's vessels. We become God's instruments of seeking and saving others. Helping others to come to know about Jesus. Helping others come to learn about the gospel so they can decide if they believe. And believe enough to render obedience to the king and the redeemer of mankind. Last week we examined this question. Went long way here. That... We asked them, what does it mean to be lost? And we talked about that. And we're very quickly just going to run through this PowerPoint here. You know, a slide that is before you. Clearly, the New Testament teaches, and Jesus himself described man's condition, that we are all sheep. And we're all lost sheep without him. And so that's why we need a shepherd. We need Jesus Christ as our shepherd. But, But what does it mean to be lost sheep? In one sense, it means to be scattered across this world's wilderness, sheep that are faint and helpless. But it's more than just that. It also means that you know, you know, we become prey to spiritual predators. And the idea we become the prey to worldly allurements and worldly entanglements and worldly deceptions. People who are lost are entangled in those things because they become prey to the predatory nature of Satan. It also means to be without hope. If we don't have Christ in us, we don't have the hope that's in Christ. That's not ours yet. It's not in our possession by faith. Going on, it also means to be lost, is to be in danger of eternally, eternally losing ourselves, losing our soul. You know, Jesus asked about what profits a man if he gains the world? He has everything that the world offers, but then he dies and loses his soul. And we know what the answer to that question is. There's no profit in that. You know, you have, you, you have invested in all the wrong things is the point Jesus is making. And in turn, that goes on to mean that to be lost without hope, you know, to you know, lose your soul means that forever we will be separated from the Lord's presence, from the Lord's glory, And also forever we will be in agonizing darkness. Not a pretty picture. And we talked about and studied about the gravity of that. And how important it is we need to understand that if we personally are in a lost state, this is what it means. But also we need to understand if there are others who are in this condition, this is what it means. So not only do we need to be busy saving ourselves through Jesus Christ, but also we need to be busy reaching outward and helping people to come to know their need for Jesus Christ. Tonight I want to look at a second question that's related to this idea of without Christ, what are we? We're lost. And that's for us or anybody else if we're outside of Jesus. We're lost. And that is, can people be lost and not know, not know that they are lost? Can people be lost 
and not know that they're lost. So we're going to look at a number of passages that clearly will answer that question for you. Let's start here with Matthew. This is part of the Sermon on the Mountain, where Jesus is speaking to a multitude of, of hearers. And sadly, you know, we see, based upon what Matthew 7, verse 13 says, there's a contrast between a narrow gate, narrow path, versus a wide one, a broad one. And Jesus says, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Sadly, the majority of people in this world, the majority, choose a path, choose a life that leads away from God. That's what sin does. Sin leads us away from God. That sin is part of the broad way, this wide gate, and many go that way. Since the days of Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden, when the first sin was committed and transgressing the Creator, ever since then, the great deceiver, the devil, Satan himself, has been sowing a spirit, an attitude of disobedience in the hearts of all of us. And we've been there. We need Christ because of sin, And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. That's why we all need Jesus. I don't need Jesus because I'm good enough. I need Jesus because I'm not good enough. We have all walked that broad way. And that broad way is going to lead, as as Jesus Christ in Matthew, it leads to destruction. And it's all part of this attitude and spirit of disobedience where it convinces people We've all believed the lie, we've all partaken of it, and we indulge ourselves in the desires of the flesh and the desires of the mind. And that's why Paul describes that in Ephesians 2 as, you are dead in your sin. When we are in sin, walking in sin, practicing sin, indulging in sin, we were doing that, Paul by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit says, in that condition you're dead. You're dead. And only Jesus can make you alive again. Only Jesus can pay the price to give give you life back to you. In John 3, in John 3, on another occasion where Jesus is teaching, he teaches us that there are times where people, people, even when exposed to the light, will choose the darkness instead. John 3, verse 19, verse, and verse 20. The third chapter of the Gospel of John, fourth book of the New Testament. And he says, this is the judgment. Jesus is speaking here. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And that's Jesus. Light came to the world through Jesus Christ and through the message of Christ. Light has come into the world. And he goes on to say, and men loved the darkness, rather than the light. For the deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. There are even people in the world today who when shown the true light will still choose darkness. You can't force somebody to believe the light. 
And you can't force somebody to follow the light. But the light has come. The light is shining. It is illuminating in this world through Christ and his gospel. And he says, and there will still be people who will choose the broad way. They will choose that wide gate because they prefer the darkness above the light. Why is that? Well, I think the simple fact is because sin is pleasurable. Sin is pleasurable. It's gratifying. Whether you're talking about the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it doesn't matter what nature, what kind of sin you're talking about, sin has pleasure. And that's why sin is tempting to us. You know, different people find gratification in different ways, in different pleasures, and so therefore people will choose to commit different sins. It's that simple. They love the darkness. They want the pleasure of the dark. And so the Bible clearly teaches that temptation is a common thing to all of us. And temptation doesn't stop just because we become a Christian. Just because we make an allegiance to Christ and we accept his promise of salvation by obeying him, it doesn't mean, oh, suddenly all temptation's gone now. No, temptation is common. And it is a battle that we have to fight. We have to consider our bodies as dead to sin, as Paul writes. But the danger is that temptation, though, can become an ensnarement. And the majority in the world, I'm making a broad statement here, the majority, the many, as Jesus says here, they love the desires of this world more than they love God. And so can people be lost and not know they are? Yes, they can. And so we need to turn the light on for them. Will they, will they believe the light? Maybe not. But the light needs to be shown. The light needs to be turned on so people can see light and dark and see the difference. In Matthew chapter 7, in Matthew chapter 7, there are some believers of God who will be so, they'll be very busy doing good things, good things in the name of religion, but they are not doing the Father's will. So here are people, as described by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount still, people who are doing good things, but Jesus says the, come, the time will come for those, this particular group of people. He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. So reading from those verses in the 7th chapter of Matthew, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not just about professing the lordship of Jesus. You know, people can say all sorts of stuff. But it's not just about words. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. You know, and he says, and they, they will not enter the kingdom but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. There's a difference between one who says, Lord, and does nothing, and Lord, and he does the right thing. He does the Lord's will. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, implying a judgment, an, account, an accounting taking place here, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we do this in your name? And he goes on, and in your name, cast out demons, and in your name, perform many miracles. 
So even in the, in the days of miraculous gifts that were given to New Testament Christians and they were able to do things for the cause of the kingdom, even in that day, people may have had some miraculous spiritual gift that didn't automatically save them. They still had to do the Father's will. And he says, you know, there will be some of these believers of God, these followers of God, who will be doing these things. They'll be doing good things, great things, however you want to describe it. But in verse 23, he says, and then I will declare to them, Jesus is the one who sits on the judgment seat in the end. He says, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So you think about that. There can be people who are doing good things, but they're not doing the things that are according to God's will. They need to know that. They need to be shown that. They need the light turned on. In the context of Matthew chapter 7, earlier on in this paragraph, it began perhaps about verse 15, where there is a warning, chapter Matthew 7, verse 15, he says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And it describes them in a very figurative way. And so he's warning here. Here's Jesus warning his audience about how there will be false prophets, there will be false teachers who will look like sheep. They'll look like sheep, but they're really not. And the reason why is because of the falsehoods that they're teaching. The error that they're promoting. And that error and that falsehood is leading away from the truth that is of God and the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. And so he says, the kind of fruit a tree bears reveals what kind of tree it is, good or bad. It's not what the tree looks like. That's not what determines if it's a good tree. You know, it's a good tree if it bears good fruit. And so it's a challenge. So examine, examine the word of teachers. Examine what they have to say. And he goes on after that to say in verse 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. See the connection? He just warned them about false teachers, and he says, watch out. Because you have to be doing the Father's will. You know, you may sound good, you may look good, but you may not be teaching the Father's will. Verbal profession of faith is empty without faithful adherence to God's will. Actions speak louder than words. Do words matter? Yes, they do. Words are important. And hurtful words hurt. And we're taught to refrain from that. But in the context of Matthew chapter 7 here, he's saying, okay, just saying, hey, didn't I do this? Oh, Lord, I love you. But he says, but you're not abiding by the Father's will. You're practicing lawlessness. And so a believer of God can justify his choices. He can justify his actions because they look at themselves and, and they say, well, you know, I'm doing good. You know, I think I'm doing pretty good, you know, but they're not doing the good that God has said. And so there's this idea of, okay, so-called religious works, well, that doesn't exempt me 
from obeying God. So because I do something good over here, all, I think it's good, and you know, whatever. Wait, but wait a minute, but what does God say over here? I'm not exempted from obedience, adherence to God. And nor is my disobedience of God's law you know, exempted, condoned, just because I've done something good over here. And so, yes, we can deceive ourselves, and people can deceive themselves. The thinking that they are not lost for just practicing a little lawlessness. Let's look at another passage. Can people be lost and not know they are lost? Turn over to Romans, Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And here you have described a group of believers and followers of God that are quite zealous in what they do before God. Verse 1, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. What Paul wanted most of all is for, for people to be saved through Jesus Christ. That's what his desire, and that's the Lord's desire. But he goes on to say in verse 2, for I testify about them. They have a zeal for God. Oh, they are zealous. And that's a good quality. That's a very good quality to have. And so they have a zeal for God, and, but he said, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so there can be zealous people, zealous believers of God, zealous believers of Christ, who fail to subject to God's righteousness. Because they're promoting their own standard of righteousness. Whatever that is. You know. And so he talks about that in verse 3. Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Righteousness or divine righteousness has to do with the character of justice. And it's the idea of the justice that God shows particularly his faithfulness when he administers justice in the context of his holiness and his truth. That's what righteousness is all about. It's justice consistent with holiness and truth. And so he says there can be people who don't understand God's justice that's consistent with holiness and truth, and, and they go about elevating or promoting their own kind of righteousness. An example of God's righteousness is found in Romans 3. It is the pinnacle of illustrations because it is the sacrifice of Christ. It is the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior that illustrates righteousness. Justice consistent with holiness and truth. And so it talks here about how God's righteousness is exhibited to us through Jesus. Verse 21, apart from the law, speaking of the law of Moses, the Old Testament, he says, apart from that, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction. 
Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his, that is God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The righteousness that's revealed in Jesus Christ reveals to us that God is not indifferent to sin. He is not indifferent to sin. Sin matters. And sin requires a death. And God says, I'm willing to pay it for you. And Jesus says, I'm willing to pay it for you. Sin is a serious matter. So God is not indifferent. God does not condone it. God does not ignore it. No, it took the death of Christ so he could be just. So he could minister justice to people who would come to believe in Jesus Christ. But also what this shows us is that God is not indifferent about the requirements of justice. For justice to be met, God worked through his son to demonstrate to us that he will justify the one who believes in Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the price for sin. He paid the ultimate price, but we have to believe. And so God is not indifferent about sin. He's not indifferent about justice. No, God is concerned about justice. And and it's exemplified to its perfection with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so God has decided what is justly right, and God has decided what is justly wrong. God decides that, not me. Not me. God does. But, in a practical sense, that righteousness, though, has to be applied to our daily life, too. It's not just about what God is willing and able and did do so that we can be reconciled, so that we can be justified, and so we can be sanctified through Christ. It's not just about that. It's also about how that righteousness, the character of justice that's consistent with holiness and truth, must be applied in our life as his people. So over in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, look at the end of the chapter. Begin there in verse 29. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, talking about God, if you know God is righteous, and he is, he's demonstrated that to his perfection through Christ. He is righteous. He says, if you know that, you know also, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And so God's righteousness must be applied practically to our daily life. Because God is righteous. Look down in the third chapter, verse 7 and 8. 7 and 8. The Apostle John continues to write on this subject. He says, little children, speaking of children of God, spiritual children. You know, we are God's little children. And he says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So we have to be concerned about people who 
are exalting their own righteousness and not subjecting to God's righteousness. We can deceive ourselves. None of us are above being deceived. And we need to ask ourselves, whose standard is prioritized? Whose standard are we going to look to? Look in the first chapter of John. First John here. Not the Gospel of John. First John here. Same small epistle. You know, look, look in chapter 1. Verse 5 begins by saying, this is the message we've heard and announced. God is light. In him there is no darkness. So it talks about the character of God. And then it turns and says to us in verse 6, if we, knowing who God is, knowing the character of God, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So a person can, complain, can claim to be in Christ and not actually be walking in Christ. So the point, can people be lost and, know, and not know they are? Well, Paul says in Romans that there can be people who are very zealous for God, but they don't submit to God's righteousness. And the Apostle John writes, he says, there can be people who claim to be walking in the light, but he says, but they're not walking in the light because they're not practicing God's righteousness. And so it's the whole idea of, de- of self-deception. We, any of us can be allured by the world and the things in it. And that's why you have a passage like Galatians 5 where it talks about the deeds of the flesh or the works of the flesh, depending on how your version words that particular account. But in James chapter 5, where it talks about those works, those deeds that are not to be found among God's people. You know, we are to be striving and working to put away these things from our past. And so he says in verse 5, verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. And then he just gives us a list of things. A number of, of different things. And they're all works of the flesh. You know, no one is worse than the other. They're all things that need to be put away. And so it talks about immorality and impurity and sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So can people be lost and not know they're lost? Well, can there be someone who is zealous for God, but they've not put away the works of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, that the world tells us that it's okay to do? Well, yes, people can do that. And so let's you know, look at another example of, uh, to the answer of this question. So you think about the idea of worshiping God. You know, there are some worshipers of God that are not true worshipers of God, and the reason why? Because they don't worship in spirit and truth. Go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. John, chapter 4. You look there in verse 24, where Jesus is teaching the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, teaching her about God, teaching her about worship, and actually teaching her about himself. And you see what he says in verse 24, how God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And that's the kind of worshiper God is looking for, as he talks about in verse 23. And he says, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. 
you know, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so can there be people who worship God, but they're not worshiping God acceptably? Can there be people who worship with their words, but their heart is not there? They've not given their heart to God. And maybe they're holding on to some worldly traditions you know, that they've, they, from their past, and those traditions are you know, pushing aside God's commandments. Yes, that's possible. Worship is not about entertaining us. Worship is not about making us feel good. That's not the ultimate thing about worship. Worship is about God. It's about Jesus. It's about the Spirit. And about honoring and revering God in the manner, in the manner that he has spoken in the, in the way that pleases him. For example, in Acts chapter 2, in, in this particular chapter, you've got the gospel has gone to Jerusalem after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The apostles preach Christ, and they convert 3,000 people. 3,000 people that day on the day of Pentecost were baptized into Christ and put on Christ because they received the word in faith, and they obeyed it, and that changed their life drastically. And we're told in the 42nd verse that those individuals, those transformed, those converted, transformed hearts and lives, now continued steadfastly in certain pursuits, certain endeavors. And he talks about how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Their apostles are teaching the word of Christ. And they devote themselves to the word. That goes us to fellowship. Now, the fellowship in the New Testament has to do with the spiritual endeavors that are shared together. It's not about you know having a social meal. And it says also you know, they devote themselves to the breaking of bread, a reference to the Lord's Supper, and to prayers. These are the kind of things that disciples did together in their pursuit as Christians. This is the kind of things that worship involves. The word and the activities we share together in the Lord's Supper and prayers. And as Hebrews 13 includes the idea of praise. That's part of our worship. Praising God with our lips through the songs we sing and through the prayers we offer up to our Father in heaven. But you turn over there and you look in verse 15. He says, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. He goes on to say, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifice God is pleased. And yet we're warned by Jesus in John chapter 4. God's looking for true worshipers, implying that all worshipers of God may not be, you know, may not be, and for that matter, I think we can commonly say, are not all acceptable to God. There are some worshipers of God that God is not pleased with. And God is the judge on that. And Christ's standard is the measure. One last thought in the lesson will be yours. And that is also there can be believers in Jesus Christ who are not saved disciples because, you know, they, for a number of reasons, they are ashamed to confess Jesus. Or maybe they are ashamed to uh, obey Jesus. Whatever the cause may be, 
they, they, can, may, they may be a believer uh, in a sense, but they won't carry that faith to its fruition. They will not allow that faith come to its maturity. And in John chapter 12, Jesus addresses a group of believers who is just in this state. In John 12, verse 42, Jesus is teaching this crowd, and he says to them, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. So he's been teaching a crowd of Jews. He said, many of them believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. We're told they believed in Jesus, but they would not act on it. They wouldn't unashamedly confess Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, because they were afraid of what other people may say or do. And it's for that reason you have this closing kind of words of chapter 12, that Jesus begins to address this subject of faith and obedience. But dropping down to verse 48, In his admonition, he says, he rejects me and does not receive my sayings as one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. You know, a saving faith must act. It must obey. It must adhere. It must submit to the Lord's will, to the Lord's teaching, to the Lord's commandments. You know, there are people in the world today who hold the idea that as long as I believe in God, as long as I believe in Jesus, it's, it's, it's really okay, you know, whatever I do in my life. You know, there's a lot of people that believe that, you know, that make, you know, they make profession. I believe in that there's a God, and I believe, you know, that Jesus is the Son of God, but they live their life the way they want to live it. They've not submitted to the King. They have not surrendered their will to His will. And that's why a saving faith, a saving faith must be one that's willing to confess unashamedly Jesus to be the Christ, Son of God. And a saving faith must be one who's willing to submit to the word of Jesus Christ because the lordship of Jesus is such that it must rule every aspect of our lives. Not just what we, what we do together in, in this building for worship, but every day of our life, the lordship must impact us. We are his subjects. We are citizens of his kingdom, redeemed out of darkness and brought into that light. And so that lordship must govern our decisions and our behavior and our words, all of that. From being baptized to wash away our sins to proclaiming steadfastly his death and the partaking of the Lord's Supper or to being pure and holy as he is. Every aspect of our life must be impacted by who Jesus is. And what Jesus teaches. So can people be lost and not know they are? Yes. Yes, they can. And that's why Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And all of us are his vessels to do that. You don't have to be a full-time evangelist, you know, standing before a congregation, preaching to an audience regularly. To be an evangelist. But you can be an evangelist by sharing Christ 
and showing people the light. Because there are lost people out in the world today who don't know that they're lost. Some, some will not want to hear you. And they will, they will close that door and close that you know, window on you. But that's not your fault that they close their heart to the God and to Christ and to the gospel. And so you go to a different door and you share the same message. And there will be hearts that want to hear the truth. And this week is a testimony of that. That there was a heart that was searching for truth. And that's what she wanted. And she gave her life to Jesus. We are his vessels. Vessels. And instruments of sharing the gospel with those hearts that are out there that can be saved. Because the gospel is the power to save them, not us. We're just an avenue that God uses. It's God that saves them through Christ and His Word. Are you in Christ? Have you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in obedience to the gospel, in obedience to Jesus? If not, we want to encourage you to do that. Not because we say so. Don't do it for us. Don't do it for us. Do it because you believe Jesus. You believe in him and you believe him. You believe Jesus. And you know he's the son of God. And you're willing to confess that faith unashamedly to other people. And to repent of your past and turn from that and begin a new walk with him. Confessing faith, repenting of sin, and then being baptized into Christ. And you have the promise, and God is faithful. He says, I will remit, I will forgive your sins when you do that. And you will know by faith that you are cleansed, and you are forgiven, and you are a new person in Jesus now. We call you, we urge you, if you've not done that, to make that decision tonight. Commit your lives to Christ, because without Christ, what are you? You're lost. Our aim is simply to be those who encourage you to be saved. You might be a Christian who has strayed from the path and you've gone into the world and and become entangled with the entanglements of this world that are so alluring to all of us. And maybe there's sin in your life that you you need to ask God for forgiveness. If we're going to help you to make your life right with the Lord, we invite you, we encourage you, please Come forward, make your wishes known, and we stand and sing the song that's been selected. <laughs>